Welcome to the podcast. On this episode, we're talking with Patrick Huck of Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. They're responsible for the materials project. And the materials project is used by scientists all over the world to analyze, combine, and create new materials. They're using MongoDB. And uh, Nick and I have a great conversation with Patrick about how they're leveraging MongoDB and how the materials project works, some of the successes that they've had in the past. It's a great project. It's all open source and a really great example of how MongoDB can be used in the science arena. You might be asking yourself, what's the easiest way I can learn MongoDB? Well, it happens to be through the MongoDB University. That's right. They offer free online training courses and over 1.5 million people are currently registered learning everything they need to know to become MongoDB experts right now. These courses are based on real-world applications, and they're taught by our team of in-house engineers. They're developed to help you build new skills in areas that matter most to employers today. That's right, relevant, up-to-date skills that employers care about today. So whether you're a beginner or an advanced learner, we've got a course for you at university.mongodb.com. Stay tuned for the episode. You're listening to the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB Podcast. Exploring the world of software development, data, and all things MongoDB. And now your hosts, Michael Lynn and Nick Raboy. Patrick, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm with uh, Mike over here, and we're going to be talking about what you do with Lawrence Berkeley Labs. But uh, I want to, like, figure out who you are first. Like, what are you up to? Can you tell us about yourself? Oh, happy to. Thanks for having me, Um, Michael, Nick. um, I am a computer systems engineer at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Um, I've been here for 10 years now. My journey started in in Germany. I did my master's in physics in 2009, end of 2009, and then started PhD and came to Berkeley in 2010 as part of my PhD in Germany. Um, I finished up research um, at the lab um, in the uh, nuclear science division in 2014 and then decided to switch from high energy nuclear physics to material science where I'm at right now Um, and in materials project, um, which is a uh, material science um, effort in the the Lawrence Berkeley lab. I'm uh, working primarily as part of the infrastructure, taking care of infrastructure, taking care of development operations, uh, running simulations. so that's where I'm at right now. How did you end up from, uh, you said nuclear, nuclear physics, yeah, high energy to material science now to doing kind of data science type stuff and uh, computer science? That is a very good question. Um, the common denominator is probably software engineering and data. Um, I think high energy physics, you could consider, along with astrophysics, you could consider the, one of the original big data science fields, right? And um, material science in 2010, when the materials project also started, is started going that direction in terms of generating lots of data, uh, having to build up an infrastructure that can serve that data, um, run simulations in, in, in very efficient ways. Um, so my experience from a PhD in high energy nuclear physics translated really well into um, what the materials project uh, was uh, doing at the time and still is doing. Um, the other thing is my my science background, right? Like even though I'm not um, pursuing a traditional academic career in material science now, it, I still have a 
I'd say solid physics background that helps me be a better software engineer in materials project. Hmm. And so you're in the infrastructure team, is that correct? Yeah, a team is probably an overstatement. We uh, Materials Project <laughs> is a scientific uh, endeavor, right? We're a DOE-funded project at the National Lab, and our whole entire group is uh, 40 people, which is mostly postdocs and grad students, and we have four staff in addition to Christine Person, who is the uh, director. Mm -hmm. uh, four staff people are Sean Dorakhnath, uh, Matt Horton, me, and a developer that uh, just joined, a web developer. And um, in that person team, four person team, uh, <laughs> I am the person <laughs> who basically uh, does most of the uh, of the infrastructure uh, as far as development and operations go. Um, that includes cloud, that includes uh, um, deployments, uh, but I also develop uh, research infrastructure for uh, data management and data contributions to our project. So I'm involved all across the the board like our our other the two other um staff people in our team are too yeah. so it's more like a we, we compare it to a startup like a very small startup that's the, usually when you're early in a pro startup project you have people that are involved across the project and uh, that's basically the four of us yeah and this project is fascinating uh, so thank you I, i've been reading quite a bit about it and um, well, I, I'd like a, a layman's description of the materials project. I, I found it fascinating diving in and, and trying to understand what the goal of the project is. So maybe in your words, could you explain the goal of the, the materials project? Um, yeah, I'll try. I'll give it my best shot. Um, so Christine Person, the director of materials project, she always, um, in layman's terms, tries to describe it as a Google for materials, right? So the idea is that um, we would run um, calculations that give us property for materials for all known uh, inorganic compounds and uh, the properties that we calculate we try we uh, disseminate or provide for free to the public uh, through a our website at materialsproject.org um, the idea then is that anybody material scientists uh, grad students um, industry uh, partners could basically go on that website and find out basic properties that we've calculated across millions of structures and millions of materials, right? That speeds up that whole process of first, everybody have to do those separate calculations on their own. And second, uh, it allows for screening uh, uh, that you could find materials that are best suited for specific applications. And then we could make recommendations to uh, experimental scientists or industry of what would make sense, which materials to try to synthesize in there uh, for the application. Mm. And these are materials that could quite possibly already exist in the known universe. Uh, your your project just helps people discover what happens when you combine certain elements. Is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, we basically help sifting through the sea of combinations and materials that are possibly out there, um, which normally uh, would take a more Edisonian approach of try and error for somebody would use his, his gut, like Edison tried to find tungsten, right? Um, but with the materials project at their disposal, those things take a lot less time because we can sift out what doesn't work at least. So that's super fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about some of the discoveries that have been made because of the project? Um, yeah. Uh, I think uh, one prominent one is uh, is uh, the Duracell Optimum battery, uh, where we've worked on, uh, or that was earlier in the project, Christine Person worked on uh, uh, studying the uh, the electrolytes and the materials that are used in, in those uh, batteries. And they were able to 
um, suggest a list of materials to use in a in a in a better material better battery material, uh, which ended up being used in Optimum, and I think that battery got released last year to market. So that's one of, one of the main. There's also examples in uh, piezoelectric materials and others. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So it seems like uh, energy and energy exploration is is probably a, a really popular. Uh, use case for the materials project. Are there others? Are there other uh, focus areas? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like originally, you're right. The materials project started out as a battery uh, focused project. Um, so that's where our original postdocs early on. But now we've spread it out into um, like also uh, solar materials, solar panels, thermal uh, thermoelectrics, um, uh, piezoelectrics. So all the all the materials properties that we can calculate from first principles and relate to materials properties that are important in different applications. That's uh, what we've been uh, trying to solve. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question. You, so you, you mentioned uh, Duracell battery and uh, I'm just, I'm so far away from knowledgeable about the space. So if you're doing research at the Lawrence Berkeley laboratory and you're coming up with these improvements to energy, are you now licensing this data to, to organizations like Duracell or how does that work? Um, the idea basically is that we would run the calculations um, uh, across all the materials that we can come up with, right? And we run that in high throughput mode and the results in, in supercomputers and the results that come out of it, we uh, digest into, into data that we can provide to the public and provide via our uh platform at materialsproject.org, but also through an, uh, an API, right? Uh, and that data set that is publicly available and people can use it for other publications, can use it for their own research. We only ask it to that we get cited, basically, that there's a list of papers and uh, postdocs that have worked on specific properties that require uh, workflows to run and, uh, and a lot of computing power so that we get credit for having run those materials and having basically provided them on our platform. Um, but then in terms of how people use it to to filter down a list of materials that is, is uh, suitable for their application, um, that's basically the guidance and the and the value that we want to provide to the public. We don't we don't license the South materials project per se. And is it so it's a SaaS based uh, compound discovery tool yeah you could you could you could call it that way yeah but our our product uh we provide to the public for free because we are a publicly funded uh, uh project right and the idea is that uh overall we're all better off if we do that uh, together than everybody alone and reproducing trying to run the same calculations yeah so what uh i want i want to get into the infrastructure side of things if you're collecting all this data what does your stack look like uh, to to do all of this? Um, yeah, I've, I'd have to take a step back a little. So there are sure. uh, four pillars, I would say, that drive the materials project. Right, uh, one is um, the high, high high throughput computations. So we run simulations uh, on uh, supercomputers um, that produce simulation output files on the file system, right? Uh, the, the simulation codes that we use for those are, uh, some are public, some need licenses. We particularly use VASP 
which is a material simulations uh, program, um, and run that in high throughput on a supercomputer. So that's, I consider that part of our stack. That's the root level. That's where our calculations are run, right? The output of it, and that's the second uh, pillar, I think, is, uh, is data, um, which means we have um, uh, pipelines that includes things like MongoDB, that includes uh, uh, open source Python packages like NumPy, SciPy, um, any uh, data analysis uh, software, um, and also like PyMongo, so tools to talk, talk to database. Um, and that pipeline, that build pipeline, uh, uh, uses the raw data that's on the file system to ingest it into uh, databases and then uh, also produce derived data that is more digestible down, downstream, more digestible to put it on a website, more digestible to, to query in an API, right? <laughs> That is that is also very computationally intensive, right? We also use our supercomputers for that. Um, we also do uh, run uh, backups with uh, uh, tape storage systems that keep our data for the next forty years. So that's also part of our stack, if you want to. Um, and then the the third pillar to the, would be one the dissemination, which means now we're getting into web development and putting the data out to the public. So right now we we're working off a uh, 2011 monolith infrastructure based on Django um, that uh, at the time was very modern, and also at the time uh, we decided for MongoDB to as a as a backend database to our service instead of uh, MySQL or SQL based. Right, um, that's a separate discussion why, but uh, it it has enabled us to grow from I think about. We started in 2011, I joined in 2014, where we were at about, I think, 5,000 users. Now we're at 130,000 users and keep growing. We're still in exponential growth. Um, but we're starting to um, outgrow this monolithic infrastructure, right? So we're right now in, a, in the middle of an effort to move everything to microservices, to layers in terms of um, separated containers that, that, we, that we separately develop. Uh, we also try to outsource uh, web development, app web development uh, to our grad students, which then um, we use things like Plotly Dash for, right, which is a, a web framework for interactive graphs and interactive apps. That is uh, that people who only know Python can write in Python, but we can deploy as part of a bigger web infrastructure. And then the fourth pillar after dissemination would be um, design, right? And a part of the design stack is having applications online as uh, as part of our website that allows users to, as I said earlier, filter down materials for their applications and find new materials that way. So. Yeah, we can talk all across that stack, and it's all uh, different parts of the puzzle. Um, but those are the four big pillars, I think. That's helpful. That's helpful to to get an, a, a picture, like a visual image of the of the architecture. Almost um, when I go to the materials project, I'm presented with a um, an interface that allows me to choose from elements, and I can combine those elements. And I, I assume, and I'm a luddite when it comes to, to this, uh, this subject, but I assume what I'm doing is searching for compounds that have been previously, um, synthesized that match that, that elemental compound. 
the only caveat there, you're right, the only caveat is the synthesized part, right? So we are a computational group. So everything that we disseminate in this web portal, when you go on our, we call it the materials explorer, when you see our uh, periodic table and you click on elements to come up with a chemical system that you're interested in. The response to that query when you're asking for a chem chemical system is a list of materials that we have computed. And some of those computed materials are synthesized. So one, one thing we indicate with uh, green highlighted rows in that result table when you're on our, in our Materials Explorer is what is, uh, has previously been synthesized. So you can, you can filter our project for things that are own, uh, our, for materials that are only computed and for materials that, are, that also have been synthesized. But even for our computed materials, we can make good... Uh, good suggestions or, or guess, not guess, but we can suggest whether that is, that should be synthesizable, right. Um, within a certain environment. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've used this term quite a bit, uh, supercomputers. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about that infrastructure. I've, I've read in some articles that it's, that it's actually distributed around the globe. What, what does the supercomputer infrastructure look like? Um, the Lo Lawrence Berkeley National Lab has a computing center called NERSC. I think it stands for National Energy Sciences and Research Computing. Um, not sure I'm getting that abbreviation fully correct, but NERSC is the lab's own computing center. It's one of uh, many in the in the U.S. and across the world. And uh, basically, what uh, that computing center provides is a is uh, a batch of computing resources, right? Nodes, as you could tell them and storage for those nodes where you can run simulations in 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 very efficient ways right those those platforms those batch farms of computers are designed for um the scientific questions and the simulation codes that we want to answer right some of some of those computing platforms are uh better for io intensive workload uh, uh, loads others are more are designed for just petaflops right just to simulate as quickly as possible. We're, we're more on the side of um, um, pure simulation, right? That means we have configuration files that define our simulation, and then it's just iteratively running numbers in memory. So it's not as IO heavy as maybe high energy physics would be. Um, and the, the distributed nature is not distributed in a way that we would actually connect computing clusters with each other, like NERSC and, and say others at other DOE national labs and, and use a compound uh, computing research at the same time. But we would, we would rather actually deploy our software and our um, analysis stack across different supercomputers and run them independently. So we can use computing time um, across many different computing centers. And since we've developed infrastructure and code that basically automates a lot of those calculations and also has self-healing uh, natures and capabilities, we can just run this in an extremely efficient high throughput. And some of the errors that happen during those simulations, they are self-healing and the, the job would resubmit on its own. So I hope that gives a bit of an impression of what our supercomputer centers look like. So you mentioned, you talked about the pillars um, and, and uh, data and MongoDB was one of those pillars. Can you talk to how exactly you're using uh, MongoDB as part of uh, this four pillar four pillar strategy, right? Four. Yes. Yes. Four. Yeah. Um, so MongoDB actually comes in as a very central aspect of our entire infrastructure. Um, you could say that almost everything we do is designed around a Mongo database, right? 
or a collection of multiple databases. Um, it starts with uh, the output of our simulations. As I've talked earlier, the raw files are on the file system and we are uh, using code that we wrote to parse that output into a database. And in that case, it's a Mongo database. But even earlier, uh, when we run calculations, our workflow software that, that defines which jobs to submit after each other, basically, sometimes when we calculate properties, we most of the time actually need a succession of calculations that need to run after each other to have all the output that we need for a specific materials property. And organizing this workflow, um, we use uh, Fireworks, which is a workflow uh, software that is also supported by NERSC and Fireworks talks to a central Mongo database that basically tracks the progress of those um, workflows and the progress of those calculations. Um, yes. Is this called Fireworks or Fireworks? Yes. Fireworks, like... Like Independence you know. Day. Yes, just like All Independence right, perfect. Day. <laughs> the idea is that a fire fireworks consists of multiple fireworks, right? Individual fireworks. Each firework is a job, and you can start a firework by sending it, by launching it to a, a job queue on in our supercomputers, and then they wait in these job queues until they get taken care of. And um, and the results of which, uh, as I said, are parsed into the Mongo database. Then we have a list of um, basically... Uh, queryable documents in the Mon in our Mongo database that is based on the raw output of those simulations. And to get back to your question, the uh, Mongo database from MongoDB from then on out is basically a crucial part all the way to the website, because any any build step that we do after, based on the raw data that we ingested into the, in the Mongo database originally, is is generating new collections, new derived documents in the Mongo database that we then use later downstream to do to do two things, either to calculate new properties or to then um, serve the website down the line. Yes. Can you can you give some examples of what each of those collections uh, might hold? Mm -hmm. um, um, so the original underlying collection would be what we call a task collection, which is the translation of each calculation into a document, right? So we parse the outputs of that um, of a calculation, which is dependent on the simulation tool that we use. Um, and then we get a document for each calculation that we've run, and we call that a task. And then we can start compiling tasks that are different styles of com different uh, um, types of calculations into um, a material. Right. It could also be a different list of structures that we've calculated, but they're really similar to each other. And we compile all this into a material, a materials project material. Um, and then we use that material definition to calculate and make tasks derived from those, those uh, and make documents derived from those task collections uh, that then contain information, say, about the electronic structure of the material. There's a list of properties, all the like 20, 30 properties, and each of them basically live in, in, in separate collections that, that, uh, um, that were generated based off of that original raw calculation uh, collection. And how much data are we talking about? How much data storage do you have? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, and a raw file system in terms of what we've generated over the years, I've dealt with in HBSS, which is uh, our long-term file storage uh, tape archive, and it's already GZIP, which means it's already a factor 10, probably smaller than the original output. Uh, those text files, I think, comprise now 250 uh, terabyte of data. 
that's the raw part, right? And then we start um, boiling it down to, I think, um, databases that have five to ten terabytes uh, each. Um, but our the, what we disseminate the high level data, of course, is is, is smaller. Uh, our website is driven, I would say, by a um, by a database that is at its core um, maybe like a hundred gigabyte. And but behind it right now in our newer infrastructure, for instance, it's something like uh, an S3 object store. And that S3 object store, um, which is disseminating part of the the larger objects that our API needs to serve, uh, will have a size of about 15 terabytes. So, wow. Um, yeah, so those are the, pretty sizable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty sizable. Now, are, is your infrastructure for MongoDB on premise, or are you using Atlas? Uh, good question. Thank you. I didn't get to that earlier. Um, the Nurse Computing Center that I was talking about is is on premise, and uh, in the past, we've basically almost exclusively used MongoDB as an on premise uh, at NERSC, Right? We've had people that that help us run that MongoDB. Most of it we do ourselves, um, but we've had dedicated servers that run the MongoDB da- database on premise at NERSC. Um, so everything, our entire infrastructure up to um, up to the website, have been running on at NERSC at our supercomputing center. But the uh, the objectives of a supercomputing center are different than what Atlas or AWS or cloud computing would provide, right? And especially for websites, cloud is what hopefully gives us almost 100% uptime, right? And at 100,000 users, we are now at a point where um, outages at the computing center would risk our de- our website to be down, right? So we've now started to make that switch to um, providing or, or, or having our data that drives the website, so the, the 100 gigabytes that I've talked about at Atlas. And that, that, that's, that is directly hooked into the same U, uh, region in AWS that, that runs all our containers, runs the API container, and, and that way is on a very solid uh, network infrastructure. Uh, and are you leveraging peering, uh, a peer-to-peer? Yes, exactly. So the, the, the connection from a, our API container that runs in a private subnet at AWS um, is, is, is connecting to an, an Atlas-deployed MongoDB server in the same region through a peering connection. Um, so that's, that's how we're currently solving it. Right. And, and that just means that the, the implementation of your applications live in almost a dedicated connection to the data that they're referencing, yes, right? To, absolutely. To explain what peering is, yeah. Yes. And, um, and, and um, in terms of uh, shifting to Atlas, as you were talking, you described your S3 object store. I couldn't help but start to think about the benefits that you could have shifting to Atlas in that space simply because we offer data lake. Are you familiar with the data lake? Yeah, I've, I've given it a try before. Yeah, um, is we, that something that you could see in your, you know, making its way into your infrastructure at some point? Um, as to a certain extent, yes. Uh, we're thinking uh, mostly in the direction of Elasticsearch right now. So um, we've one issue we've had is not as much what data lake would solve, because uh, I think that um, is well served enough by S3 right now and S3 objects uh, that we directly serve through the API. Um, 
but one one thing that comes up is is querying our formulas. So you remember when you or when you went on the website and you click elements, and um, that search is right now driven by MongoDB queries, and and it's hard to make the MongoDB query, especially if once you start doing wildcards and 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 list of elements, and there's a uh, hundred, there's quite a few amounts of elements and of quite a few amounts of combination and formulas you can come up with. And uh, that's the part we're trying to serve with something that maybe Elasticsearch or um, I think MongoDB or Atlas was doing uh, Lucerne-based. Elasticsearch. Yep. Um, yes. So we've looked at both of them. We're in the middle of trying to figure out what we should do and what we should use. Um, we're early in that process, but that's something down the line that I would say uh, would, would become important. And MongoDB could play a role depending how well we can figure out Lucerne, right? Or the scene, sorry. What are the challenges that you that you have today? What's what's really difficult about your job? Uh it's a good question, because I think the most difficult part about my job is the is the breadth of what I need to do. Um, in terms of uh, expertise that's required to get it to work. Right. As I said, we're not a we're not, it's not like I can offload anything to anybody. It's not that there is a big cloud experience generally in, in sciences. Um, what's unique to our project is that um, a scientific group rarely also has to run an efficient public website that, that is available 24-7, that serves data, that has all the infrastructure requirement that a modern website has. And, and the expectations, I feel, are are high. There's no like people don't go to a website and are are happy with clicking a button that doesn't respond. That that's not the expectation. So um, even though we're a scientific project that doesn't have engineering teams, and I mean even a, an engineering team of ten people, which I still have to do the same lift. I still have to do the same uh, cloud infrastructure. I'm writing cloud formation templates. I need to know about networking. I need to know about like the ba the basics at least of how AWS clouds. Uh, private clouds work, how subnets work, how load balancers work, all the way uh, up to how to write APIs, how to uh, understand and uh, talk to scientists that want to give data to the materials project, understand their data structure, understand their scientific field and motivation, and make it as easy as possible for them to provide us with the data. So it involves pretty much anything that modern I would say data infrastructure and web infrastructure has to do and the breadth, the breadth of it and the time I have in a 24 hour day is probably the biggest challenge. <laughs> mm, well, hopefully, hopefully as you begin to lean more on Atlas, that can take some of your, some of the burden. That's what I was um, about to say, actually, this is where it's, it's been a no brainer in our switch to microservices in terms of offloading bandwidth to people in our group automating deployments, um, making it resilient so that I don't always have to jump in and do sysadmin stuff. That's what I don't want to do. I'm okay with DevOps, but sysadmin and running MongoDB servers, it's not a, well, it, uh, not a, <laughs> not a good use of my time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you, you mentioned automation. Are you leveraging the, the Atlas API at all? Uh, not Directly, no. Um, so one way to use the Atlas API for us in the future would be with uh, user access, right? So me, like uh, one scenario that we're currently doing is that each of our um, postdocs and grad students basically gets their own dedicated 
database, MongoDB database that they have access to, and they run the uh, they run their calculation, and the output of that calculation is stored in that Mongo database, right? And then it's used as a basic uh, basis, as I've said before, to um, to build all the derived collections that then serve our website. Um, those databases that each of our um, postdoc and grad students have uh, are now at uh, NERSC, and NERSC is also working to maybe make this easier to provide stand-up MongoDBs just upon request. But one way I could imagine we, us using the Mongo API is to basically talk to the API to, to build up databases automatically upon request with scripts and others. But we haven't, we haven't gone that far yet. Uh, uh, in the same vein, though, I, I think uh, MongoDB has uh, recently started to support uh, CloudFormation templates, right? So that I can set up entire instances on CloudFormation, and that would be actually really valuable for us. Uh, so far, I've done it. The ones that's the cluster that's running now in MongoDB is I've set up manually and then hooked it into my uh, CloudFormation templates at AWS. But if I could make that part of uh, my infrastructure as code, that would take yet oh, another game changer plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah i haven't gotten yeah. around yet to to actually try it out but i think those are important milestones mm. i just spoke with another developer at a german company who's developed a a suite of ansible playbooks to wow. interface directly with the atlas api that might be something that and it is open source so mm -hmm. uh, that might be something that we uh we connect you connect the dots there that sounds super interesting Hey, so one of the things that I suffer from is is a lack of visibility into this space. It's not a, it's you know your industry is not a place that I spend a whole lot of time. So I want to I want to give you the opportunity to maybe bring up things that we uh, we should we should be talking about in this space, but we don't know about. Like what else do you want us to to, to, to what else do you want to tell us about um, Lawrence and and your job and the materials project? I think there's two things I can think of. One is um, the using the cloud infrastructure using things like MongoDB, using all the open source tools that are out there from a, uh, from a software engineering perspective and from computer engineering uh, systems is, uh, is looks a little different in the sciences in academia, right? Um, we're not, it's not, it's not built up as like a, a startup that, that knows that they need to invest these resources into computer systems engineers. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind for people that build the tools for industry, if they also want to serve the sciences, is that they're talking mostly to scientists that are very talented engineers, too, right? And that they, they are the, connect, the connection between the sciences and, and industry. And if you're a scientist trying to solve a problem, most people don't want to talk in detail about the technical challenges. In the end, you uh, part of my job is to, in quotes, just make it work. And uh, I think there's a lot of good discussions to have that might end up being a little different than in industry because um, industry would maybe just pay for certain services where the sciences and uh, the OE funded project would not have the same budget, right? So we're trying to solve many things with open source and maybe redo things that, 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 an, that an industry or a pro-level subscription to certain services would get us, <laughs> but it's just way out of budget. So... Um, AWS has helped out a lot with like open source credits. MongoDB is, is, is trying the, the best to, to help us with reducing budgets and, and giving us bandwidth that we as small teams can use. So it's, 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 I think it's a very different mindset from industry to, to a science team, where a science team has all the technological challenges, but they won't ever have the budget to just throw computer systems engineers at it. 
So I think that's a very, very important point, um, which also uh, gets me to a point of how academic careers look like, right? Like, again, it's, it's publication-based. So computer systems engineers are either engineers like I am at a national lab, but in, in universities, that job doesn't really exist as much. But the, the te technology, technological challenges are all the same. So if I look at MongoDB and others, the more they can reach out to those scientific projects and try to help them take things off their plate without exploding the budget <laughs> and without trying to sell products, then yes, that would that's that's the service we can all win from. And um, who who else would you like to appeal to in this space? I mean, are you is is Lawrence hiring? Are you looking for additional bright folks to join the team? Or yeah, one thing is definitely uh, raising awareness about Matilda's project. This is. Uh, again, a open source project that's funded by public money. Um, so I think it's always important to see for anybody who's interested in sciences of how scientists are actually trying to get their data out and getting and making it valuable to industry. Um, so one uh, audience that I'd like to appeal to definitely is people that are looking uh, into how sponsoring science is actually important for industry, right? Like how you cannot always target science towards the industry and have a, a valuable product in two years. This is not a two-year effort. This is decades, right? So seeing something like the Matils project actually having direct value through a platform to industry is something that is that I think should be appealing to a broad audience. Um, the second thing in terms of hiring is um, I think it's, um, as it's less known that that you can have a computer systems engineer career in an academic academic setting. It's also less known that that's an environment you could apply for if you're a talented engineer. Uh, we are in a we are in an area that is super competitive in terms of engineers, right? But um, and we are trying to compete um, financially, but in a Silicon Valley, it's kind of kind of hard. But what we uh, what we provide is is and that may sound a little high horse, but we provide a different purpose, right? It's, it's the purpose of your engineering is, is, is purpose for greater good is maybe a little much, but for the public and everything you do will end up in the public space. So you, you're trying to make a product that, that helps the world out in the material science sense. So uh, I would definitely, we, we reach out on Hacker News and others too. So if you see uh, national labs and sciencey tech come up, uh, that's definitely somebody, something a talented engineer should take a second look, even though it's not the first one to apply to. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think the potential to have an impact in that space is is massive. So yes, so uh, you, I can't be, imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I can't be, imagine that you're struggling to find um, candidates. Um, I think it's harder than it looks, right? Like you, we get we get applications, uh, and we would especially for our web developer positions and other, we would get applications, but people that are, that are um, experienced enough to work in a small team and independently. So we can't like necessarily start out and learn somebody on the job. That's not, uh, so not like if you're fresh out of school, it might like science, uh, software engineering in science might be overwhelming, right? Depending on what you studied, but it might also be just down right down your alley because you've had a solid science background and you know how to talk to people that maybe talk to you from that 
from that standpoint. There's no filter between the in a small team between a scientist talking to you that wants something off a website and it doesn't work, <laughs> and you have to kind of find the right you have to find the right words to ask and 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 go about it on your own. There's no layers in between you and uh, and basically your customer. Uh, you are the one that has to figure out the overall picture and solve the problem in front of you. So if you're somebody that works independently and has a solid science background, uh, computer systems engineer in that, in that field is very rewarding, I would say. Hmm. And to the people that are, are listening and they're, they're excited at the moment, where do we send them? Where, where can we get more information on the project? Uh, yeah, I would first send them to materialsproject.org. Um, that's our website for sure. Um, we also have a, a, a group website at per, uh, persongroup.lbl.gov. Uh, person is uh, Christine Person's last name, who is the director of Materials Project. Um, and those two are probably good sources. We also um, uh, uh, post jobs and, and, and contacts and the things that we do on our persongroup.lbl.gov website. So I think that would probably be the best best place to start if you're interested in working for our group or um, interested in what we do. Um, and then, of course, the, the job sites of LBL. That's where first things go. Patrick Huck, it's been a great conversation. I feel like I've learned so much about the materials project. I want to thank you for spending time with us. Um, we learned about uh, you personally, how you went from being a, a I guess you were a physics major. Yes. To, yes. Um, uh, to an infrastructure, I guess, what, what was your title? Computer systems engineer. That's my official title. Yeah. Which encompasses everything from like uh, data science to databases. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, a term for all of software development and above. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And we learned a little bit about how MongoDB is leveraged in the project, which is exciting. It's awesome to see MongoDB out there in the wild. Um, and uh, we learned about where we're going to send people. We told them about the, the materialsproject.org. And um, I think we've covered it all. Anything else to add before we close out? No, I'm just very happy that you would have me on your podcast. I hope this is valuable for, our, for everybody that's listening. And please feel free to reach out to us if there's any other questions or interest in the project. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks so much to Patrick and to Lawrence Berkeley Labs, valued customer of MongoDB. If you want to learn MongoDB, the best and easiest way to do that is online through MongoDB University's free online training courses. As I mentioned earlier, there's over 1.5 million people registered and learning the skills that matter to employers today. Check it out at university.mongodb.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Have a question or a suggestion for the show? Visit us in the MongoDB community forums at community.mongodb.com.